Good morning. Let's uh, send the children out for Children's Church. This next week, we're going to uh, restart, start again, restart again, the Women's Bible Study. Uh, beginning this Friday on September 20th, it's going to go here from 9.30 to 11.30, um, and they will be studying the book of Philippians. Uh, I think Janet has some extra books and materials. If you have not signed up yet but still want to and want to attend, this is your chance to do that. Uh, I think there's like 15 or something so far signed up. Yeah, so that'll be a good group. Um, so you have that, uh, and now here we are where we will be reviewing the contents of Revelation chapter 20 today, featuring what are likely the six most controversial, most discussed, most disputed verses in all of Revelation, and that is saying something. And I only have a couple hours to get it all in. So, so by way of introduction, here's kind of the, the, the basis for this dispute before we look at it. Way back in the beginning of this series in Revelation, you remember uh, we did that kind of two-week panel, um, Al, Randy, and I, on uh, kind of the, the big picture overview of Revelation, and we looked at the four different approaches that have developed over time on how best to understand or interpret the book of Revelation. This was way back in, in January. You remember this chart, right? So here are the four historical ways that have developed over time. Uh, and just a short recap, the, the preterist view is basically an understanding that John's visions were directed primarily to the first century church. Um, they, they would have understood this letter in a very contemporary, modern way in the first century. So preterists tend to believe that the visions described in the book of Revelation were all fulfilled by AD 70, uh, that uh, it may have a application for later periods of time, but we need to try to understand that through kind of a first century lens. Um, historicism tends to see the visions here as symbolic, but they actually represent real events and, and real people over time. So this was all prophecy, but it has to be interpreted and identified and tied to the real world we all live in. So, for example, historic, historicists would see, most of them, would see the seven letters to the seven churches as representing seven church ages over a period of time, or, or they would see the sealed judgments um, as the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So all these events have to be tied to some world event or events. Um, and because Jesus has not returned yet, they will also look at our current events uh, and try to tie current events to some of these visions that John wrote about way back. Um, so when you hear somebody say, you know, after my exhaustive study of Revelation, I've concluded that uh, Jesus is coming back on Valentine's Day, that's probably a historicist perspective. They're, they're looking at current events and, and trying to tie it to some of these specific prophecies. We tend to, as we have said, and have said repeatedly, we tend to land in the idealist camp, and we've been making that argument throughout the series. That divisions in Revelation do not necessarily identify specific time periods or specific events, but they do identify patterns that are repeated throughout history. So when we get out of our kind of Western mindset, and we view everything through a fairly narrow lens of our recent past. When we get out of our Western mindset, we, we understand that persecution has existed from the first century onward, even if we haven't felt it. Um, we understand there have been patterns of persecution. There have been patterns of suffering and, and, and cycles of God's judgment. They've all been evident throughout history. So the seals and the trumpets and the bowls all show us these patterns uh, and, and how God has been involved throughout all of history. He's not just watching all of this transpire. So although the seals, trumpets, and bowls, for example, we think are kind of telling the same story from different perspectives, they're all building towards a final conclusion, a final judgment. Well, then that leaves us with the futurist category. And we discussed how the futurist, futurists um, see John's visions as mostly literal, unless they can't be literal. Um, and, and they believe John's visions demand a specific chronology. These events have to happen in the way that they're described in the book of Revelation. That we need to read and understand all of these events 
that we find in the text in the order in which they occur in the text. Now, we think this poses any number of challenges on how best to understand all that's in the book of Revelation. And then we get to Revelation 20, and this is one of the bigger challenges, um, especially, I think, for the futurist approach. And even within futurism, there are different groups or subsets of how they view what we're going to see in chapter 20. It all gets very confusing. So the futurists, you've probably heard these phrases, the futurists tend to kind of divide themselves into camps, the premillennialists, the postmillennialists, and the amillennialists. And today we're going to look at the millennial and see why there's so much confusion. So these, these three subgroups of futurists, they're, they're all divided and they're all centered around how they understand or approach this thousand-year period. So hopefully, as we look at today's text, we could try to make this a little clearer or not. I really don't know what to expect here. There's, there's a lot here. But let's, let's jump in here and see how we do. Starting in chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we gather together this morning to, to praise you, to worship you, to honor you as, as Lord and King um, and the ultimate source of truth. And so as we approach this difficult, challenging text today um, with great fear and trembling, Lord, we pray that you give us open hearts and open minds and, and help us see um, uh, corroborating texts, help us see patterns, help us see the ways that we can, we can best understand this and how it makes sense for us. Um, and in fact, how it has made sense for all believers throughout all the church age. Uh, so be with us as we spend time in your word this morning and open it up for us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So at face value, this, these few verses seem relatively clear. Satan's thrown into a pit. He's bound. He's, he's locked up, you know, figuratively handcuffed, maybe. His effect is limited. His impact is curtailed. All possible meanings of it. But he's not, as yet, destroyed. And he remains bound. He remains constrained for a period of a thousand years so that he may not deceive the nations any longer. I mean, so initially, this seems relatively simple. But it poses several big questions. Among which are, is this binding that we read about, is this literal or is it symbolic? Or both, maybe. Is the thousand years, is that a literal thousand years or is that a symbolic thousand years? And when does this thousand year period occur? All of a sudden, this is not so simple. And therein lies the nature of the dispute or the disagreement among the, the many factions. Now, I will say this again before we proceed. We've said this over and over. We can disagree over how best to understand this particular text. This is not a matter of salvation. It's okay if you want to be wrong and believe something completely other than what I'm going to present. I'm okay with that. It's fine. Our faith is not at issue in how we understand this. Reasonable people can have a reasonable disagreement over this topic. That's fine. We can still hug if you want to afterwards. Our concern, as we have stated throughout, is to try to stay faithful to the text. Try to look at what is here without being overtly influenced by left behind or whatever else has loomed large in our collective Christian conscience. The Western church has been heavily influenced by dispensationalism, for example, over the last 150 years or so ago. And that opens up a whole other can of worms about the nature of Israel and the church, and it gets really, really muddy and complicated. So we're not going to get into those weeds. We're going to stick to this text, see if we can figure out where we can get some help or understanding, and look at other scripture and how it relates to this. So consistent with our view towards the idealist approach, we believe that this scene or this vision that John has here is not necessarily a new development. But rather it's a, a retelling or a different perspective on events that we've already read about in the text. And, and the sequence of the visions here, I think, provides us something of a clue. 
Remember, we just heard over the last week or two in, in Revelation 19, 19 verse 11, we read about the appearance of the rider on the white horse, whom we now know to be Jesus. So the rider shows up on the white horse. It says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. It said the armies of heaven were lined up with him, all decked out in their fine white linens. And on his robe was written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the triumphant second return of King Jesus. That's what we just discussed. Then it said the angels were called down to feast on the flesh of the enemies of God and Jesus. And the beast and the false prophet were both captured and thrown into the lake of fire. This is a scene of final judgment in chapter 19. And we've seen this before in the repeated uh, seals and, and trumpets and bowls. We've seen all this similar imagery all leading to a final judgment. Because they're telling the same story from different perspectives. If we were to take a literal approach to Revelation, we'd somehow have to believe that the world ended like six different times throughout all of these events. But what we're being shown are different facets and, and, and different perspectives to help us better understand how the Lord is and has been working through time. Working for our benefit. Working for the benefit of every believer and working for God's own glory. That's the picture we're being shown. So if our approach is correct, if this is not new information, exactly, it is a retelling of earlier events, which means that rather than read this text literally, we believe, I think most of us, a lot of us, a few of us here are in agreement, that this is a symbolic binding of Satan and a symbolic thousand-year period, which then begs the question, what does it symbolize? I'm glad you asked, because it's really quite fascinating. Um, and I hope as we, as we go through this, we can, we can be biblically consistent with it as well. But remember, our argument has been that the visions in Revelation primarily cover a period of time that coincides with the appearance of Jesus. That chart we showed showed the timeline from Jesus' arrival to Jesus' second coming. That's how people are looking at this, this book of Revelation. So this time period coincides with the first arrival of Jesus and the second arrival of Jesus. And this was primarily written to the first century church. That's when, when John had these visions, wrote this letter. But there's applications for all believers from every era in between the first and second advent of Jesus. And what it describes in this, as we've seen over and over, is this ongoing spiritual battle. So prior to Jesus' arrival on earth, humanity, from a biblical perspective, was kind of messed up. And it was divided into two primary camps, the Jews and the Gentiles. You were either a Jew, part of God's chosen people, or you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, God's not-chosen people group. And Gentiles were far and away the, the mostly people group. That was the largest group of people. And while the Jews at least professed to be God followers, as we know from the Old Testament, many were not um, or did not remain faithful. For the larger part, the, the Gentiles, they were Satan worshipers. They did not worship God, which automatically puts them in the Satan worshiping camp. He was their grand poobah. So whether it was overt or not, if they didn't worship God, they worshiped Satan. That is still true today. So not surprisingly, when most of the world is not following God, the world was troubled and dark. As early as Genesis 6, God told Noah that the earth was exceedingly wicked. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. God told Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. So needless to say, not only was Satan the uh, predominant worship figure, but he was extraordinarily influential among the peoples of the world. He was a remarkably counter counter-idol to God for a long time. And then Jesus came. With his example of a sinless life, with, with his substitutionary and atoning death, followed by his resurrection and ascension to heaven, Jesus made it clear, and Satan understood that things had changed. Not only that, but God was now offering his, his inclusion of his chosen people group. He was offering inclusion into his special privileged group to everybody. 
This was no longer an ethnic issue or a national issue, but salvation is now made available to everyone. Anyone who confessed and believed. So there is no longer an ethnic divide, a national divide. There is now only a faith divide among the two groups of people. And there are still just two groups, believers and unbelievers. So one of the spiritual effects of Jesus' death was Satan could no longer deceive the nations on a national or ethnic scale because salvation was offered to everyone, regardless of race or ethnicity or color. Salvation was extended to everyone, every man, woman, and child from every tribe, nation, and tongue. They could receive the grace and mercy of Christ. So the dragon, Satan's virtual stronghold that he had for so long, his monopoly on evil, and leading others, nations among them, his ability to lead nations into evil was now limited. Everyone had this chance for salvation. There was a clear physical and spiritual alternative in the form of Jesus. In short, Satan's job was made harder to deceive. There was no more blanket or ethnic or generational deception. Everybody had the chance and the opportunity to hear and receive truth. So it was as though Satan's power to deceive on a global scale had been limited. It had been curtailed. So now the battle was that the battle for souls was, was personal. So I, I think it's fair to say, from my perspective, I think, and what Scripture says, that the binding of Satan started when Jesus did not yield to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Satan was defeated. He was defeated in the wilderness, and he knew he was defeated after the resurrection. And so that victory over sin, victory over Satan, spread from Jesus to his disciples, and from his disciples to their disciples, and to every other believer from throughout the church age, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So I think the picture that's being painted here in these first three verses is the, the, the love and grace of Jesus through his death and resurrection has now been extended to all of humanity. It was as though Satan had been bound. He could not claim every soul. His power has not been eliminated, but it, he's been handicapped. The power and love and the grace of Christ put limits on the power and appeal of Satan. And I think scripture supports this understanding. In Acts 14, Barnabas and Paul were at Lystra. Um, Paul had healed a crippled man. And the witnesses around that began to refer to Paul and Barnabas as Hermes and Zeus. And they all wanted to rush off and make sacrifices to the Greek gods rather than to the God that Paul was, was preaching. And this happens in Acts 14. Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. I mean, the implication seems to be that in the past, in the pre-Jesus era, all nations were allowed to do their own thing. They were largely being led by Satan rather than by God. Satan was the prince of the air, after all. And then in Acts 17, just a few chapters later, it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The pre-Jesus days are the times of ignorance. Now you have the light. Now you've seen the light. Now you've heard truth. He's living among you, has lived among you. And so now, because you've heard the truth, God calls all people to repentance because there will be a day of judgment. And he verified this. Jesus verified this. He proved it by raising from the dead. So the appearance of Jesus, the raising of the dead from Jesus, has had this stifling or limiting effect on the power of Satan. He has been bound. And I don't think we can miss the fact that even Jesus used this idea this imagery of binding 
In Matthew 12, Jesus had restored sight to a demon-possessed man, and the Pharisees said, well, you could cast out demons probably because you are one. You probably come from Beelzebub for all we know. And of course, Jesus gave them a proper schooling in their idiocy. And then he says in Matthew 12, but if it, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Do we see how all this is starting to come into focus here? First, Jesus confirms that this miracle of healing flows from the Spirit of God. But then he uses this same analogy. He essentially says, Satan is the owner of the house. Satan controls this world. And I can't just come in and take his possessions. Well, I can because I've limited him. I bound him. I'm, I'm allowing people to see and hear truth. I can snatch people from Satan. I can take his, what he thought were his possessions because I've got power over him. Satan is now limited. I've limited his activities. Same, same imagery that Jesus uses. And he does it for the benefit of people. So that people are now better equipped to choose to follow Jesus than the strong man. Satan. And I think this is made even more clear when Jesus ends this with people now have a clear choice. Whoever is, with, whoever is not with me is against me. This is a salvation issue. That's what he's laying out here. With Satan bound, handicapped, curtailed, people are now free to make a clear choice. And there are more examples like this that I could use, but I, I think you can see the, the, the picture here. All of this supports the idea of a, of a symbolic understanding that Satan, the dragon, uh, the, the ancient serpent, the devil, all of those are included here to be sure we understand exactly who we're talking about. These are all different descriptions of Satan throughout Revelation. He's not literally under lock and key, but his power and effectiveness has been diminished. It's been limited in order to provide people the opportunity to choose Jesus. So if the binding itself is symbolic, then that would mean that the period of his diminished power is probably symbolic as well. And again, we think it runs essentially from the time of Jesus' arrival, or at least coincides with the start of his ministry, to the time of Jesus' second arrival, or close to it. So we're talking about this present church age. And that's what this shows. Time of writing, first century, death and resurrection... So all of Revelation covers this, all of this period till the return of Jesus, which I think is the thousand years. That thousand years covers that whole period of time. The millennium is the period between Jesus' first and second advents. All of these things have been true during that time period. When the church is planted and the, and the church grows and the church is persecuted and Christians suffer and waits. And then at some point, we're told that Satan will be released for a little while. He will have, he'll, he'll be back to his fully functional evil self, but this is going to be allowed for a very short period of time. Where presumably during that time, he's going to do his darndest to get people stirred up against God and against the church. He'll gather kings of the earth to wage war, which is what we saw last week in chapter 19. So again, a strict chronology here doesn't make a lot of sense if we go from that depiction of war in 19 now to chapter 20 where if we follow chronologically, this doesn't make sense. It's not logical to follow 19. Chapter 19 is describing the, the events at the very end of the church age where this thousand years is the church age. You with me so far? Is it making any sense at all? I'll keep talking. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Part two of the highly disputed six verses 
that divide pre and post and all millennials. And then lots of other people too. So at this point, I'm going to spend really zero time differentiating all the different views and opinions that, that come out of this. There's even great diversity of thought amongst all of those, those camps themselves. We're just going to try to deal with what we see here in front of us. John has another vision which includes thrones. Now, we've already established, discussed that the visions are not, we believe, chronologically ordered based on their contents. We're, what we're being shown in Revelation is the order of the visions, not necessarily the order of the contents in the visions. Which is why we're seeing these patterns or cycles that keep repeating over time. It's, it's kind of like, um, it occurred to me this week, it's kind of like if you've ever served on a jury and you go to court and they bring in a number of witnesses and you hear different perspectives from each witness all on the same event, and you might hear different scenarios, you know, no, he's blonde, no, he was brown-haired, he was blue-eyed, he was... But it serves to give you a fuller picture of what actually happened. That's kind of how this is laid out. All these different approaches and perspectives give us a fuller picture of what is happening. So, whether that's helpful or not, I don't know. But I think we can make the case here that this vision with the thrones seems to be concurrent with a thousand-year period. They're connected in time. The first three verses talked about the thousand years. If we look at verse 7, which we will in a minute, that starts off with when the thousand years are ended. So this all seems to occur in this thousand-year period. I think logically that makes sense. And John sees a bunch of thrones here. No indication as to the number of thrones, just a bunch of them. And John describes what seems like several groups of people This is really interesting, I think. He says, with him were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. He saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and those who had not worshipped the beast. Three different groups of people. But I think we can say, without a lot of detailed support, because this is the direction we've been going, these are all descriptions of the same large group of people. This is different ways of looking at the same group of people. This is, what's being described here is the bride of Christ. It's the 144,000. It's the church. It's the martyrs. This is that group of people who've been faithful followers of Christ throughout the whole church age, who have died, and now are present in heaven for this scene. These are the faithful, persevering, enduring followers of Christ from all churches, from all time, who have physically died prior to this moment. And it says, they, the faithful here, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Another section where there are numerous theories. Most of them are based on how they approach this book or understanding. I don't think this is quite as complicated as as some try to make it seem. The faithful followers of Christ here are those who have died, believers who have died from throughout the age. It even says that the souls are here. They're, They're like some kind of We don't know. We've never experienced it. But disembodied spirits, maybe, or there's some kind of presence for all these referred to as souls gathered at the throne, reigning with Christ throughout this present church age, throughout this 1,000 years. We're all there. Those of us who've died prior to this, we're all there. Remember in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.8, Paul wrote, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Some translations say, absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's what this is a picture of. That's what we're seeing here. When a believer dies, his soul, his spirit, whatever, whatever this is, is at home with the Lord. All gathered in this scene. Well, then it says, the rest of the dead. Now, in context here, I think the rest of the dead must refer to those who were not faithful those who were not perseverers, enduring followers of Christ, those who did worship the beast. So we've got two classes of people here, the followers of Christ, the non-followers of Christ, the believers, the non-believers. And those who did worship the beast, they did not come to life, not until the thousand years had ended. So the unrepentant dead are just dead waiting for the final day of judgment while the believers are in heaven for this thousand symbolic years 
worshiping, reigning, ready to judge when the great day comes. Well, it describes this as the first resurrection. Another source of great confusion and disagreement. And a lot of those discussions, I'm not sure I understand the, the fine points people are arguing. But I think this seems fairly clear here. The, the first group, the faithful, they are now present and reigning with Christ. The second group, the non-Christ worshipers, the beast followers, they're all still dead. So the first resurrection must refer to the redeemed, the faithful. And it seems this has to be a a spiritual resurrection because they're absent from the body and they're present with the Lord. We're told that these are the souls of the martyrs, uh, the souls of those who died for the cause of Christ. So they they likely don't have a corporeal, physical form at this point. That's going to come later. But they're still present. They're still preparing for judgment mode with King Jesus. And the spiritual blessing, we're, the spiritual resurrection, we're told, is a blessing. It, it is somehow part of, our, part of our salvation package. They are blessed. They're now considered holy. The flesh has been put to rest. Sin has been eradicated. And for these overcomers, physical death has been overcome. They've been brought to life. Furthermore, I think the second death, which is the eternal consequence of sin... The second death has no power because these people have been forgiven. They've been justified. They've been sanctified. They are blessed. And more than that, it says they're going to be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for this entire period between Jesus' first and second period, which is the symbolic 1,000 years. It's a lot of information in a couple of little verses here. But let's Remember, keep this in the, in, the, in the frame, in the context of Revelation. What's being revealed here at the end, what we're seeing here are more fulfilled promises that were made in the letters to the churches in the very beginning. We looked at one of these last week. But you can see in chapter 2, verse 11, the overcomers, the perseverers, will not be hurt by the second death. That's what we're seeing here. In chapter 2, 26 and 27, it says they'll reign with Christ in his throne. That's what we're seeing here. We'll be clothed in bright garments. That's what we saw in the last chapter. We'll see again. So all of those promises that were made at the end of all those letters, to him who overcomes, to those who persevere, here are the promises, here are the blessings you, you're going to experience. We're going to see them all played out here in the next couple of chapters. So if the thousand years is the church age, if it's the time between Jesus' first and second appearance, then the end of the thousand years must be his second coming. That's the conclusion to this period. And just prior to his second coming, Satan is going to be unbound. He will, for for a short period of time, be allowed to return to his former powers of persuasion and deception. And he's going to make every effort to deceive the nations from the earth. And he will, again, for a short time, be very effective. He'll gather Gog and Magog for battle. Did I get to that part? Oh, that's where I am. I forgot to read this, didn't I? And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let me say what I just said again, because this is important. If the thousand years is the church age, the time between Jesus' appearances, then the end of the thousand years must refer to just before his second coming. And just before that, Satan's going to be unbound. He's going to be released. He'll he'll have his former powers of deception and deceit. And he's going to gather all all of these kings. He's going to gather Gog and Magog for battle. Now here again, a, a historicist, historicist perspective might say, well, Gog and Magog clearly is Russia and China. Or, I don't know, Iran and Peru. They're going to find some kind of contemporary modern events and, and try to tie these to some you know, current event. But these two names, Gog and Magog, they're, they're, they're taken, they're borrowed from Ezekiel. We've looked at Ezekiel a number of times throughout this book. It's amazing. Chapters 38 and 39. Uh, in, in Ezekiel, these names are used as prophetic or symbolic armies 
that were opposed to Israel, opposed to God's chosen people. They're used in much the same way here. Gog and Magog represent all of the armies, all of those opposed to God and his people, which is the church. So they don't need to correlate to any specific country. They're used to represent all the forces, all the peoples, all the nations who have come under the spell and deception and the banner of Satan. And they're going to line up opposed to God for this big battle. It says their number is going to be like the sand of the sea. There's going to be a lot of deceived folks. And now we get to this point, and you, you should be thinking, this sounds an awful lot like what we read in chapter 19. Just last week, we saw that Jesus is on the white horse, ready for battle. There are two armies lined up and ready. Right? And remember in chapter 19, we said that the big battle came, and it was pretty underwhelming as far as battles go. We got the description of the big opposing armies. Everybody's lined up. There's probably a lot of tension, maybe. I don't know. And then, boom, it says the false prophet and the, and the beast were captured, and the battle was over. This sounds a lot like the same kind of event. We're given a few more details. The army was so big that they surrounded the camp of the saints. It feels as though we are surrounded by evil all the time. The ones clad in white linen, the saints are surrounded. Things look bad. Things look dark. And then, boom, fire comes down. Consumes the enemies of God. Once again, what was our level of participation here? None. None. The saints, the bride, the church, the 144,000. We had to do nothing to secure this victory. This was all Jesus. So Satan's allowed this very brief window in which to rally his troops. And all we can say for sure is that this, this window of opportunity is relatively short. You know, if, if a thousand years is used to describe the period between Jesus' appearances, uh, the time for Satan to be unbound is really, really short. And we could get into the whole time, times, and half a time, and 1,260 days or years or minutes or however you want to look at this, seven years. All the other ways people try to paint this picture and ascribe timelines to it, but honestly, whatever the time period happens to be, whether Satan's time is three hours or 30 days or 50 years, however long it happens to be, none of that really adds much to our understanding or our preparation for what is to come. Whether Satan's unbound and purely evil for 30 days or 300 years, whether the heightened persecution and the suffering of the saints is going to last for 30 days or 300 years, we are still called to persevere it and endure it and overcome it. That should be our focus. Not on trying to develop a tribulation calendar. Oh, look, March is false prophet month. That gets so far off the mark. The picture we're being shown is as bad as things may get for the world in general, but for Christians in particular, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are going to be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented forever and ever. It's the redeemed who will be reigning with Christ and will have a front row seat to it all. So the question for us, it seems to me, should not be why is the church having to suffer? The question should not be, why am I having to suffer? We suffer, we experience grief, we experience pain because we live in a fallen, sinful world. All of us. Every person on this earth forever has suffered in some form or fashion. The real question for us should be, why do I deserve eternity in heaven free from suffering? Why do I deserve an eternity in heaven saved from the consequences of my sin? And we have to answer, we don't. But when we focus on our own pain and suffering, which is so easy for us to do, we all do it from time to time, 
when our focus stays there, we miss this bigger and this much more hopeful picture. We miss out on hope. And at least some sense of future joy, if we're not feeling joy right now, there is this future joy we can look forward to. We're going to see that play out in the next couple of chapters. But first, there's one more vision related to the end of the thousand years. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we've read some pretty dark and disturbing scenes in this book, disturbing imagery and troubling events and dragons and beasts and, you know, all the, all the other fun things that artists have making pictures of, but this may be the heaviest and darkest scene yet. For some, for most, this is heavy. And it comes at the end of the thousand-year period, whatever, whatever time frame that happens to be, but Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. He's going to right all wrongs. And it begins here. So we know the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet have already been dispatched. That battle is over. And now John sees a a throne, this great white throne, and he sees him who is seated on it. And that's all the description we get. Because no further description is needed at this point. We've been told that Jesus has defeated Satan and the rest of the unholy trinity. We've been told that Jesus was marked as king of kings and lord of lords. This is his throne. We've been told that he's going to be the one to establish righteousness and bring judgment, and here it is. And he is so seated on this throne, he is so transcendent as creator of the universe, he's so far above his his creation, he's so supernaturally present, so holy, that the earth and sky fled away. They've been so tainted by sin for so long, they just can't be around. They're not allowed to stay in the presence of one so holy. And John sees this, this great sea of dead assembled, lined up before the throne. And it says, the dead, small and great. That seems to include everyone. Everybody's small or great. We all think we're great. Most of us are small. But it includes all of us. Even those who died at sea. And so the idea is every dead person from everywhere all time, they're all, they're all present in this. And even in cases where there's no body to reclaim, All these souls are here, slave and master, king and peasant, believer and unbeliever, all lined up to be judged based on the books that John sees opened in this vision. And then there was another separate book that was also opened. Now, there's obviously not a lot of detail about how this process works, how it's going to play out, other than these books are involved. So as I was trying to think through this, and and my mind works by making a movie, Right, So I, I, I'm dramatizing this and thinking how, how this would play out from my perspective. And it would be something like, you know, there's this enormous group standing before the throne and, and the next in line steps up and is recognized. And the books are open to his page and the history of his sins is read aloud. And he's eventually asked, how do you plead? I'm guilty. They did all of those things. And then the other book is checked. And they're, they're leafing through, and it, it turns out they can't find his name in this book of life. I mean, in, in addition to this litany of sins that's been read aloud for this person, his underlying offense is having ignored or rejected God's call for salvation. He's an unbeliever. He's guilty of offenses against the holy God, and he is judged and punished and thrown into the lake of fire. John says even after death and Hades gave up their dead, even death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. It's interesting. We tend to think of them as as 
places or concepts maybe, but they're, they're personified here, and, and they're sentenced to the lake of fire. So even the idea of evil, anything remotely connected to evil, is sentenced, thrown into the lake of fire. Anything peripherally related to evil or unholy is cast out of heaven. This is final judgment. Well, eventually, the line moves along. It's my turn. And I imagine as I step up, I hear Marshall Taylor, and I think, well, they used my given name. I am in trouble. And I, I begin to hear this list of sins read out, offenses against God that I've committed throughout my lifetime. And it's embarrassing, it's shameful, it's hurtful. And it goes on and on and on. I start to, to feel the weight of all the bad that I've done, and, and I start to feel the weight of regret for all the good that I didn't do. And at long last, I hear, how do you plead? What can you say? I'm, I'm guilty. I, I did all of those things. I've sinned against the Holy God repeatedly. And it's time for my sentencing. And the great judge opens up the, the other book, and they scan through. And they find my name. And they'll know that I, that I, that I put my faith, I put my trust in Christ. I, I worked towards living a faithful life. I tried to walk in a worthy manner, even though I fell short on a somewhat regular basis. Yes, I did all of those things. But I also believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins, as egregious and plentiful as they are. But I confess with my mouth, believed in my heart that Jesus died for my sins, that he is Lord. And the judge will say, forgiven. justified, sanctified, free from the consequences of my sin. I mean, what a moment. We can only just get the slightest sense of what that's going to be like. What joy shall fill our hearts, the old song goes. And it is for this moment, and then for all of eternity afterwards, but it is for this moment that we are called to persevere and endure and overcome. It's, it's for this moment that we cling to hope. Not the touchy-feely, golly-gee, I hope so kind of hope, but the hope that is built on God's word says it. Jesus died to prove it. And his promises are sure. I've been talking about this a lot with a number of people in various contexts over the last month or so, but it seems like in our day this is part of the end times not that it's next Thursday, but as we move closer to the end. But too many Christians, we, 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 and I, I see conferences and everything else, too many Christians are bought into the idea that because God loves us and Jesus died for us, that we are somehow protected from heartache and despair and poverty and pain. We are not. Intellectually, we know that's not true. Practically, emotionally, we really, really want it to be true, but it's not. And we, we allow that thinking to, to gain a foothold, then the ground under our feet of faith becomes shaky and shifting. This says we are blessed, not with guaranteed wealth and health. We are blessed, not with perfect marriages or perfect kids. We're blessed, not because we live a good and holy and virtuous life. We're blessed when we put our faith in Christ. When we persevere through our lack of health and wealth. We're blessed when we endure our imperfect marriages and our almost perfect but not quite kids. We're blessed when we overcome the temptations and snares of this life and we put our faith in Christ and we stay faithful. We're blessed when we share in this eternity as joint heirs with Christ. 
as judges and priests to our king. We have to remember, we're sojourners and exiles here. This place is hard. But it's not our home. We find joy where we can. And there's lots of joy in this world that God created. We find joy, joy where we can. And we look forward with hope, even in hard times. We look forward to hearing, not guilty. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Lord, we're grateful for this time together. <clears throat> we're grateful for the challenges of your word and how it causes us to, to dig a little deeper and think a little harder. Lord, I pray that as I hope most of us will go back and revisit this, this chapter in particular because there's so much here, there's so much going on. But I pray that we don't focus over those issues that can be divisive, but we focus on the issues that bring us joy, the issues of hope. It, it renews in us uh, a need for salvation, a need for staying faithful and staying true. But also a reminder that we are going to continue to fall, that we're going to continue to sin. But you are a faithful and just God. Jesus died to forgive us our sins. And even when we continue to sin, we pray for repentance, we pray for forgiveness, and all those sins can be washed away. Lord, we look forward to this glorious day, as difficult as this is going to be for so many. We look forward to this glorious day as joint heirs of Christ, of, of enjoying eternity with you. Until then, Lord, keep us hopeful. Help us find joy where we can find it. And not be overcome by the temptations and trials and snares of this world. We thank you for this unending love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.